Rejection is a hard thing. I was not always the specimen I am now. I'm a bit offended. What was that laugh about? Uh, when I was in high school, I was a scrawny, tiny kid. I mean, I never grew to be a tall guy. I say 5'10", but probably more like 5'9", but whatever, whatever. There, 5'10". Uh, but I was skinny, I was short, and I had giant nerd glasses that were like binoculars on my face. They had blue, like I think now they would be totally in and retro, but back then um, it separated me from the crowd by quite a bit. But I loved to play sports. So I would join the intramurals teams and try and make the high school teams if I could. Um, and, you know, play schoolyard sports. And you line up and you choose two captains, of which I was never chosen. And you stand there and wait. And wait. And wait. And wait. Until there's one person left. That was okay. It was okay. Because I was okay at sports. I wasn't, I wasn't an all-star, but I could hold my own. But, you know, it started to shape my identity, this rejection. It started to shape how I thought about myself. And it translated into more ambitious endeavors in finding a spouse. In that I was never particularly confident figuring out if girls were interested in me, why would they be interested in me, a scrawny, short, big glasses dude? So I didn't really hone my skills there well until Bible school. That's the place you go, right, to get married? I mean, it's like everybody bats a thousand there, I think. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, so I'd gone to, to UBC for a couple of years, went to Bible school, First class was a religious studies class, and I sat down beside this lovely girl who I got to know over the course of the class. And about two-thirds of the way through the year, we had to go into Richmond from Abbotsford to uh, visit all of these. We went to a, a Jewish temple and a mosque, and we went and um, visited the Hindu temple and um, just kind of explored the world religions and what they offered just to understand them a bit better. So we sat beside each other on the bus all the way in and discussed the, greatest, the greater things in life, what family looks like and what we wanted out of life, you know, really deep kinds of connections. So when we got back, I thought, here's my opportunity. So in my fumbling way, I said, uh, would you, uh, would you like to have, would you, would you, would you like to go for coffee sometime? Like, I'm interested in you. She looked at me, uh, I'm engaged. <laughs> oh. She wasn't wearing a ring, so I don't know what was going on there. But that actually, that rejection hurt more. That cut actually quite a bit deeper because it was 
me, the person. It was me, even though like she had extenuating circumstances and what have you, it, was a, it felt like that was an attack on me. I wasn't good enough. I wasn't the right guy. I fell short. Nobody has experienced that, hey? Oh, okay, okay. But you know, God has experienced his own share of rejection, his own denial all throughout the Israelites history he was rejected as God see when the Israelites first kind of came into a people God had protected them and brought them to Egypt so that they would be protected from a famine and then when that Pharaoh died then the next Pharaoh came in and uh, subjugated the people and made them slaves and then God raised up Moses brought them out of Egypt through the ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and right on the other side the Israelites make a golden calf and worship the calf not God they reject God and then God brings them through the desert parts the Jordan River brings them into the promised land drives out all of the people and they turn to other gods, the gods of the Philistines, the gods of the Ammonites. They made Asherah poles, worshipped the high places instead of God. They rejected God. And then 1 Samuel 8, 4 to 7. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. See, God's intended design for the people of Israel was that they would be ruled by God himself. He would be their king. But they looked at the nations and said, no, we want that king. We want that king. We want something that looks like that. God, you are great and all. Yeah, fine. You stay over there. And rejected God. And that just continued throughout Israel's history to our passage today in John chapter 18, verse 38 and following, which I'll read. Jesus is in the middle of his trial, and uh, he has already been questioned by Pilate for a while about what is truth and what is the kingdom of God, and then we pick up reading this. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, Jesus? They cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. 
Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So then Pilate heard these words. He brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is a really interesting scene, kind of what the judicial system looked like in the ancient days. See, there were certain things that the Jews could do to sinners or those who had broken the law, but they weren't allowed to do everything. If they wanted to kill somebody, they could stone them. But if they wanted crucifixion, they had to go to the ruling governor of the time, Pilate. Oh, and that relationship was a little bit of a challenge because there was always strife. The Jews didn't want to be occupied, the Romans were occupying, the Romans wanted to keep peace, and the Jews didn't want to keep peace because they wanted to wait for a Messiah and have autonomy. They wanted to be a sovereign nation. So there was always friction. So we have this scene where the Jews don't want to be unclean by going into Pilate's palace because they want to celebrate their feast of Passover. So they stay outside, while Jesus is being interrogated inside, and Pilate goes back and forth. And at times brings Jesus out, and at times doesn't bring Jesus out. And we pick up the story halfway through, at a point where 
Pilate has talked to Jesus and figured out, like, this guy is not guilty of the accusation of being a king. The implication is that what Jesus wanted was to amount or bring a revolt, kick out the Romans. That was the accusation the Jews were bringing against Jesus because they thought that that would be enough for Pilate to say this insurrectionist should be crucified. But after interrogating him, Pilate finds... No, 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 that's not true. At the very best, Jesus is, you know, a, a, in Pilate's mind, a philosopher. Somebody who thinks that his kingdom is not of this world. And so Pilate says he is innocent. And John uses this section to really drive home the point that Jesus is the king. That Jesus is who he says he is. By comparing back and forth. So first, first Pilate says, okay, he's innocent, but I have a custom. You can release one person. You can release this innocent guy, the king of the Jews, or you can release this guilty guy, Barabbas, whose name literally means son of the father. So you can release son of the father or son of God. Your choice. Release Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. So, Pilate has Jesus, the innocent Jesus, flogged. Now, there was three kinds of flogging. Uh, typically, the last two kinds were reserved for the crucifixion portion of a capital punishment. That was actually a, a, a a way in which they made the crucifixion not last as long. If you simply hung somebody on a cross, they would last a long time. So they would beat most of the life out of them before they hung them on the cross. So this flogging was a punitive one, an example-setting one, in where Jesus was flogged to set an example and say, look, I've dealt with his punishment. This should be good enough. And in the process... The Roman soldiers clothe him in a royal robe and put a makeshift crown on his head and drive the thorns into his skin and start hitting him and mocking him and spitting on him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. The Roman authority beating the ultimate authority in Jesus, the King. Then Pilate brings him out, battered and bruised and beaten, to prove a point and say, Look, behold this man. Has he not endured enough? Has he not gone through enough? He is innocent. Are you not satiated, high priest, Sanhedrin, Jewish leaders? Are you not satiated? Can you not see that he has taken more penalty than he should have? Oh, no, they're not satisfied. They want to see Jesus ultimately shamed. They want to see Jesus hung like a criminal, to suffer as deeply as you could suffer. They want to crucify this king. 
Pilate's in a bit of a quandary. But the thing that scares him the most is that they said, he says he's the son of God. Pilate, being a good Roman, would have been a polytheist. And he would have thought, oh, you know what? Sometimes the gods come and visit us. Maybe I just beat a god. Oh, I could pay for that. So now he's a bit scared. So he goes back into Jesus and asks a funny question. So then I ask, uh, so who are you? He asks, where are you from? Are, are you from here? He would know that Jesus was Jesus of Nazareth, right? I mean, he'd been around for three years doing miracles. Crowds and crowds were following him. There were Roman soldiers that were following him. Pilate knew who Jesus was. Knew where he came from. And yet he asked, where, where are you from? Jesus does not answer. So Pilate gets a bit annoyed. A bit, you know, like, come on. Don't you, like, are you not aware of the power I yield over you, king of the Jews? Do you not know that I hold your life in my hands? That I can choose whether you go free or whether you die. And Jesus' response is, you don't have authority over me. It was given to you. It was given to you. And from that point on, Pilate's like, oh, I got like, to release this guy. Like, there's, I, he's innocent. I don't know where he's from. He's claiming a higher authority, and I'm hedging my bets. There is no way I'm crucifying a god. Well, maybe he would. Maybe. So when he goes back out to the Jews, and he tries to release Jesus, they say, if you release, if you release Jesus, you are no friend of Caesar because Jesus is a king. And a king is directly opposed to Caesar. So if you're on Jesus' side, you're against Caesar, Pilate, and you've got to remember that we haven't had a good relationship. So this probably means your career is over. It means that Rome will come and depose you and put somebody else in your place and your comfort will be gone because we'll make sure of it. It's a veiled riot threat. You want to take his side? Fine. And you're no friend of Caesar's and we'll prove it. So Pilate's backed into a corner. He sees Jesus is innocent, but his political career is on the line. Social unrest is on the line. So he takes one more dig and says, should I, should I crucify your king? Should I crucify your king to the high priest, to the Jewish leaders, to those who should know the Old Testament, should know what the Messiah looks like? Should I crucify your king? And their resounding rejection of God is we have no king but Caesar.
so Jesus is crucified. The rejection is absolute. The leaders, who should know better, have cast the king aside. But you know, that, re that rejection continues today. It wasn't a one place, one time court of law and where injustices were done and a man was killed for things that weren't true or were ultimately true, but they didn't realize it and its importance. No, no, no. This is a historical, continuing reality of humanity that we reject the king. If you type in, who is Jesus today? Oh, man, you get so many responses, whether it's, you know, New York Times around Easter talking, getting some scholar to talk about whether Jesus existed or not, or what, what, whether Jesus' teachings are useful for today or not, or whether what he said was true or not, and you will find person after person after person after person rejecting the king. So three that I can sum up at this point is the first, people reject Jesus as a legend. Oh, that was 2,000 years ago. Our sources are incredibly unreliable. I mean, the Gospels were written a couple of decades after Jesus was actually on the earth, if he was on the earth. It was written by people who were, had a vested interest and therefore cannot be trusted. It is myth. Jesus did not exist. He is legend. Well, outside of the fact that we have secular uh, confirmation through Josephus and Tacitus uh, of Pilate crucifying Jesus, uh, there's an interesting argument being made by a guy named Gary Habermas. He is a uh, professor of apologetics and philosophy at Liberty University. And he wrote his PhD on something called the minimal facts approach. So what he said is he said, okay, fine. There's all of these skeptics out there. There's all of these people out there that would say, oh, we don't believe in miracles, so we can hack away that part of the Bible, and we don't believe in this stuff, so we can hack out that part of the Bible, and this isn't reliable because we don't know who the source is, so it could have come so much later, so we hack out that part of the Bible. And they create a section where they would say, okay, there are actually only little portions that we can use, that we can say are historically verifiable, that are historically true. So there are seven books of the Bible that can be used of those, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Romans, 1 Thessalonians, and a few others. And not all of it, parts of it. Anything, so he went with the most skeptical people. Anything that was changed, if there was a little mark that was off, or they took a section and moved it to another spot, or some, anything like that, it's, it's taken away. 
And he said, okay, if I can with this, with this skeptic's idea of what, um, what the Bible is, if I can show that Jesus died, he was buried and he rose again, historically, we have a case. Now, he takes an hour to go through it. I can't do that. I would love to. But he uses 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7 as his cornerstone, which is this. Paul, talking, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So I gave to you, Corinthian church, what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. With Galatians, with some other texts, he shows that Paul would have had this information two years after the death of Jesus. Two years. Now, we believe in, or we know, Alexander the Great lived, right? Do you know what the manuscripts we have are? 450 years later. Those are the best ones we have. The earliest is 300 years later. If we want to believe in the Hindu scriptures and what they teach, that's six to 900 years after the events in that book happened, do we have the manuscripts for it? Two years is pretty good, historically speaking. Okay, so maybe it's not a legend. Maybe he was here. Then we're going to reject him based on the teachings that he taught. God and money. You cannot serve both. Matthew 6. If you want to serve God, money will be subservient. If you want to serve money, you will not serve God. You cannot love both God and money. You can only love one. Oh, but that's hard. What about my retirement? Clearly, Jesus wasn't talking in a capitalist society and where if we don't get ahead and save for our retirement, then I'm going to be living on the streets. Clearly, I need to have X, Y, and Z thing. Do you not know what is needed? Money is important. Jesus didn't understand what money was about. So, you know, can't really talk about that. Or marriage, Matthew 19. Ah, marriage. Jesus talks about one man, one woman brought together that no man should separate them. And he brings it all the way back to Genesis, saying, no, 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 God intended that man and woman together in their uniquenesses would image God, would be a picture of what God is like. And so when that comes together, nobody should separate it, and there isn't an alternative. Oh, but... Jesus didn't do gender studies. He doesn't understand what's going on. 
He can't know. It's just so outdated. Or hell. We don't like hell. Jesus talked about hell a lot. That look, if you don't follow a certain way, you will be under the wrath of God. And that that wrath of God will not go well for you. That's uncomfortable. What about this God of love? We can't really say somebody's wrong, can we? Or we reject Jesus because of his radical attitudes towards sin. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Whoa, that's a bit extreme. How about we start with, you know, some psychotherapy that's going to just, uh, you know, amend our thoughts and not cause us to be so destructive and let's, you know, order our social life in such a way that we can cope with the world. Let's not talk about the devastating effects of sin. No, 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 no. Let's just mitigate the cause it or the effects of it. Jesus is so outdated. So outdated. And then there's Jesus' claims, which people don't like. Uh, He's one with the Father. He is one with God, John 10, 30. Um, He has one essence with God. But I thought he was a historical person. He existed before Abraham. Ah, Do you guys know when Abraham lived? Like thousands and thousands of years before Jesus. Uh, You were born in a manger in Bethlehem, Jesus. How is it possible that you could be before Abraham? Or we reject Jesus' claims that he will be the future judge. One day, everything, will be brought before him and judged. Or that he is the Messiah, the one that the Jews have been waiting for to set them free, to show who God really was, and to bring to completion God's plan of salvation. Or he has the ability to forgive sins. Not forgive somebody who sinned against him sins. No, 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 no. To forgive the sins that you have sinned against God, Jesus' claim is that he can forgive the sins that you have committed against God for you. This is not, you, you, you wrong Jesus, he can forgive you. He will forgive you for the, sin, for the wrongs you have committed against God, for the wrongs you've committed against your neighbor, for the wrongs you've committed against your wife. That's an audacious claim as a human. Or he is the door to salvation. That he is the way into which you can have right relationship with God. Or believing believing in him would grant you eternal life. You're a man. A historical figure at best. And yet you think, you think, that you can save me for eternity? That not obeying him would lead to God's wrath. 
That if you don't listen to the teachings that he laid out on marriage and hell and sex and money and forgiveness and how we should deal with sin, that if you don't actually follow those teachings, that then the wrath of God would be upon you, that you somehow would have broken God's law, not Jesus' law, God's law. Okay? Or probably the most difficult one in our day and age is John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. No one. Not if you're Buddhist, not if you're Hinduist, not if you're, you believe in Islam, not if you're a good person, not if you're Mother Teresa, not if you're Barack Obama, not if you mow your neighbor's lawn, if you're a good husband, no, 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 no one, zero, comes to God except through him. Now, here's the thing. That if Jesus isn't God, he's crazy. Right? Like, who believes that they can forgive sins, that they, are the, that they are the way to God, that they are the ones who can stop God's wrath, that only through believing in Him that you could have that everlasting life? Who believes those things? Except if He's God, right? Except if He says, if He actually is who He says He is. This is why the resurrection is everything. C.S. Lewis popularized a quote, a quote by Watchman Nee and a few others throughout history, and he, he said it like this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic. On the level with the man who says he is a poached egg. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither lunatic nor a fiend and consequently however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem i have to accept the view that he was and is god see the resurrection changes everything the day that jesus raises from the dead from a group of people who knew how to kill people well. And he shows himself to Peter and to his disciples and to at least 500 others. 
says, here I am. That is an exclamation point in history. And if, in fact, that is the case, then everything that he had to say is not from the perspective of a man 2,000 years ago in a Roman culture in a, in a Jewish city. It is from the perspective of God himself. And so when God himself says, this is how you should be in marriage, or when God himself says, this is what wrath looks like, or this is how money should be done, we should take heed. See, he's king of kings, and he is lord of lords, and he sits at the right hand of God and will one day judge. Will you bend a knee? Will you worship him as king? Oh, I pray that you do. In your heart and in your actions, that you would reflect the mercy that God has shown you through Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's pray. Father, we just make this truth uh, true in our lives that we would bow before you as king, that we would listen to what you have to say, that we would hear your words, and that we would follow. God, thank you for what you did through Jesus, and would you please bring that to our hearts? Would you manifest that in us, and would you drive that seed deep? In Jesus' name, amen.